Following the referendum, we face a time of great national change. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to the final SITREP of the year. This week, we're taking a look at some of the events that shaped the world in 2016. The war in Syria, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump as the next president of the United States are just some of the things that sent shockwaves around the globe. Well, I'm joined by former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett, international analyst and naval historian, Professor Eric Grove, and as ever, BFBS defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Welcome to all of you. Uh, Lord Dannett, first of all, have you been surprised by world events this year? I think this year has been quite an extraordinary year. There was a wonderful map cartoon in the Telegraph of two academics walking along and one saying to the other, I'm studying international politics and the syllabus runs from Tuesday lunchtime to next Thursday. Mm. I mean, so much has happened in such a short period of time, whether it was the referendum, whether it's been the war in Syria, whether it's been the US election. It's been an extraordinary year. Professor Eric Grove. Yes, I think... I would certainly agree with that. I mean, huge mega events, that earth-shaking, shaking events. I mean, the, uh, the the whole Brexit thing, which hasn't played out yet, uh, will have important implications for European security as as well as for economics and the whole uh, and the whole question of the future of the of the EU. And as far as Donald Trump is concerned, well, it's very far from clear what he's what what he's going to do. There could be a revolution in American diplomacy, for bad or good, or possibly a mix of both that will create so much uncertainty there'll be a crisis by mistake. Christopher Lee, how do you think historians will remember this year? Um, just one thing, and that's the election of Donald Trump. And eventually they will try and figure out it properly how it was America at this time, what was it at, at this time that caused America to elect him? But Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, two famous comedians 25 years ago, walking down Whitehall in a sketch. What are you doing now, Pete? Oh, he says, I'm foreign secretary. He says, no, nor am I. And that's the feeling that we feel at the moment. Expecting the unexpected. Let's take a look at some of the stories in more depth, starting with Syria. The Foreign Secretary and I are working on plans to see what more we can do to persuade Russia to allow supplies in and to continue the pause that there has been. But this is in Russia's hands. Russia could end this indiscriminate and appalling bombing tomorrow. Aleppo has become the apex of horror, at its most horrific extent of the suffering of people. There are barely any functional hospitals left in eastern Aleppo to treat those who have escaped death as all the hospitals are being bombed into oblivion. The situation inside the eastern part of Aleppo is the doomsday. Bombs are everywhere. People are running. They don't know where. Just running. Uh, people are injured in the streets. No one can dare go to, to help them. Some of people are under the rubble. No one can help them. Lord Dannett, a desperate humanitarian situation at the moment. What's your assessment on the year in Syria? Well, the tragedy that's been unfolding has come to a real climax at the present time, and I think the situation in Aleppo uh, illustrates just the enormity. Um, people are quite rightly drawing comparisons to the uh, massacre at Srebrenica in 1995 and, and, uh, and in Rwanda. I'm afraid the sad reality is it should never have come to this, and the reason it has come to this 
is the absence of leadership from the West. And whatever we might think about Donald Trump, I'm afraid President Obama, having made much of being the president elected to stop wars and not to start them, has shown no leadership from America. What do you think he should have done? Well, I think we should have stood up very strongly. I think think we should have uh, also uh, realised in the aftermath of the Arab Spring in 2011 that the rush to condemn President Assad was perhaps premature. The rush by the West was premature. I think people have forgotten the fact that Iraq, Libya... Um, Syria and Lebanon are artificial countries put together in the 1930s by European countries and they've only held together because they had strong regimes. If you're going to get rid of those regimes, you've got to have a worked up plan for what goes in next. We didn't get it right in Iraq. We should have learned that lesson. We haven't got it right in Libya. We're trying to learn that lesson and we're doing it again in, in Syria. And the Russians have seen the opportunity and they've moved in big time. And, uh, Yes, of course, um, the people who can stop the killing in Aleppo now are the Russians and the Syrian regime. But uh, there's still a responsibility on the West to join with other leaders around the diplomatic table to hammer out an agreement, which may then require to be implemented on the ground mm. by international forces, as it was in Bosnia in 95-96. Christopher Lee, um, Lord Dunnett there, saying that the rush to condemn Assad was a mistake. Why do you think that happened? Was it just lack of understanding? Didn't know what was happening. Very simply, a complete misreading of what was happening in those opening days in in 2011, and what is and what was happening? What was this? There was a great protest, and during that protest, which would not have ended simply as street sort of protests, it it had already developed too far. But what was also happening uh, was the beginning of what uh, I suppose the foreign secretaries refer to openly was the beginning of proxy warfare in in the Middle East. This was a much bigger thing than than so-called rebels. I mean, especially at the moment, I mean, when you consider that 30% of the so-called rebels whom we've supported in many ways uh, are members of uh, Islamist groups. And so we come back to the, to the failure, and I think it's a failure, or an unwillingness to believe what they saw and to take notice of a lot of their analysts. And then you have to say, I'm very, very sorry, but we have messed up on this. And don't forget, um, the one you left out, General, I think was Afghanistan. The one we still... Uh, we, we, we didn't get to Afghanistan in the, for, the, for the right reasons. We, didn't, we weren't prepared to put something in its place, and we didn't recognise that you couldn't put something in its place, and you certainly can't put it in its place in, in, in Syria. The thing that troubles me most at the moment is that we're seeing very much the war through the organised eyes of one side of it. There has been very little... There has been very, very little... Um, 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 Contact. I mean, there has been recently with the government side. There are two sides to this war. There are two sides to this war, and in fact, I can't help feeling that the that, that the rebels' information campaign has been extremely skillful, extremely skillful, and that what and whatever the government does and the Russians do is, I think, to some extent at least, exaggerated. The rebels strike back at, at their enemies in other parts of the city. Um, and they and they create civilian damage. You have sometimes to compare RT, and I never thought I would agree with RT, which is normally the most awful, awful Putin-esque propaganda. But on the other hand, it has had some very interesting and telling things to say about 
the um, about the um, the way in which the information campaign has been handled. Little girls, seven-year-olds, who suddenly become great experts in international politics and mm. call for withdrawal. I have to say that my sort of analytical cynicism has been somewhat stimulated by Lord, that. Lord Dannett, um, you talk about this uh, this failed leadership. What's why has there been such a vacuum created in leadership on the on the global stage in terms of the West? I think in part it's a reaction to Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, both the Americans uh, and the British in proportion took very heavy casualties in terms of fatalities uh, and um, soldiers, sailors, airmen and marines injured. So a real reluctance by Western governments to get stuck into a, another campaign, um, a reluctance to intervene again. And that's understandable, but that doesn't actually excuse international diplomats of great seniority getting around the table and insisting that the Russians, the Iranians, the Turks, the British, the Americans get around the table and hammer out a diplomatic solution. Do you um, think it's, it is a failure of diplomacy on a global scale? That... Yes, it has been a failure of diplomacy because um, military people understand von Clausewitz's great dictum that war is but a continuation of politics by other means. All these conflicts start with a political process, a political breakdown. There's a period of war fighting, and it invariably then returns to a political solution. Um, what we've got here is just fighting. There is no political diplomatic context for it, and that's the tragedy. That's the real tragedy. Can I just put this in one context? Consider the period we're talking about, and we'll stick to Syria, so it's just 2011 to more or less now. Think where the Obama administration was in that sort of period. Think of the difficulties that Obama had with the promises when he was elected earlier to say, right, I'm not going to get into the wars there. Think where the British government was in this great transition that was taking place and not having control of its parliament. The whips in the House of Commons for the 20-odd years I've watched them were never, never less uh, successful. Mm. Think where Europe was and the great transitions in Europe with the stimulations of the German economy, with the difficulty of Hollande being, being elected and nobody quite knowing, and no decisions being taken. On what we see, we have a picture then that of the great superpowerdom that normally we'd relied on for 30 or 40 years to fix things was in no position to fix, fix things. Mm. It was no position to take the big decisions that would have had 10 15, 20 years' uh, results, which nobody was as able to do. And the level of deployable military power America had was actually quite limited. I mean, if you looked at, the, say, where the U.S. Navy was, it was one aircraft carrier in service. That's mm. all deployed. And, and, and also, I mean, there have been reports that I've seen that, in fact, when the intelligence came back, that it wasn't necessarily just the government that had used chemical weapons, uh, that perhaps there was a certain embarrassment there. Well, one of the reasons that Britain has stayed away from Syria, as you mentioned, Lord Dannett, is because of Iraq. And in July, Sir John Chilcott delivered his report into the war in Iraq after a seven-year wait. Military action at that time was not a last resort. We have also concluded that the judgments about the severity of the threat posed by Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, WMD, were presented with a certainty that was not justified. I express more sorrow, regret and apology that you may ever know or can believe. We were proud when our husbands, sons and daughters signed up to serve our country. But we cannot be proud of the way our government has treated them. We must use this report to make sure that all parts of the Iraq war fiasco are never repeated again. Lord Dannett. 
Well, we've waited a long time for the Chilcot report, and two and a half million words is a very long report, but the essence of it is quite simple, that we were taken to war on a wrong premise. Uh, Tony Blair had given his unequivocal support to George W. Bush in Easter 2002. Can you remember what you thought at the time? Yes, I can remember exactly what I thought at the time. I was the assistant chief of the general staff in 2002, and I was seeing much of the intelligence coming across my desk, and I thought it was very uncompelling. And then I thought to myself, ah, well, the really key stuff is being kept for the big boys. And then I remembered, actually, as assistant chief, I was representing the army fairly regularly around the chief's table. I was one of the big boys. So where was that compelling intelligence? Now, the mistake that Tony Blair made was basing his case for going to war on weapons of mass destruction almost exclusively. If he had based his case on the large number of UN Security Council resolutions that Saddam Hussein was still flouting, had built up a wider case for war, then actually it might have been more convincing. He didn't do it, and therefore we were taken to war largely on a premise. And, of course, the real tragedy was that by going into Iraq, we took our eyes off Afghanistan, and that meant that the Taliban regrouped and we had to go back into Afghanistan in 2006 in another conflict that was then even more bloody. The Chief of Defence Staff has said that they're going to have an away day with service chiefs to talk about uh, the lessons learned from this report in January. What will the lessons be? Well, the lessons, I think, are quite clear, that the British Armed Forces, when there is time for a considered decision, must not be taken to war without the approval of Parliament, there must be an overall strategy, there must be an operational plan that works, and that plan must have sufficient resources so that soldiers, sailors, airmen and marines in the air, on the land and in the sea have got a winning, a winning set of opportunities. Sit-rap. With Kate Still to come, Trump comes out on top and it's bye-bye Obama. Also, the panel predicts a look at what's in store for 2017. PFBS Sit-rap. Well, before all that, let's look back at Britain's biggest story of 2016. The total number of votes cast in favour of Remain was 16,141,241. The total number of votes cast in favour of Leave was 17,410,742. Let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day. I will do everything I can as Prime Minister to steady the ship over the coming weeks and months, but I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. Following the referendum, we face a time of great national change. And I know because we're Great Britain, that we will rise to the challenge. As we leave the European Union, we will forge a bold, new, positive role for ourselves in the world. Professor Eric Grove, how do you think Brexit will influence the UK security and defence? Well, at one level, uh, NATO has always been the thing that we've emphasised, and I know some people have had fears about a sort of too much of a European dimension to our defence. But my own view is I think it will weaken our security in lots of ways. First of all, it will demonstrate that there isn't the European solidarity that people used to think there was. Um, after all, some of the only official 
formal connections between countries, say, like Sweden and the rest of Europe are in, are, are in fact via the EU. The EU was growing in, in useful ways, I think, like Operation Atalanta, uh, the anti-piracy operation and so on. There was, it provided a good context for cooperation uh, at, the, uh, at the wider security level. And I think that at a, a both a, a political and an operational level, it will do quite a lot to weaken our general position. We'll have to see you know, how best we can salvage something from this situation. Mm. Uh, Lord Dunnett, do you think Britain's weaker in terms of security as a result? Uh, what we have to remember is that NATO is our primary defensive alliance. Um, what we mustn't confuse is the UK leaving the European Union um, translating into any kind of weakening uh, of, of, of NATO. Because the opportunity that Vladimir Putin sees is to do anything and everything he possibly can to break up the cohesion of NATO. You have to remember about Mr Putin. Scrape him to the core. He is an unreformed KGB colonel whose beloved Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact was destroyed by the cohesion of NATO and the West 25 years ago. And that's why he's chipping away at eastern Ukraine. That's why he's chipping away at the Baltic states, seizing the opportunity in Syria. He wants to, he wants to cause doubt. He wants to erode Article 5. An attack on one member is an attack on the rest. That's what we've really got to watch, and that's why whatever happens on the Brexit route, we've got to make sure that we're four square in NATO, and maybe Britain to show a bit more of a leadership role amongst the European nations within NATO. Christopher Lee. Um, three things here. It won't make any difference at all. Uh, look at the British forces from the home front or from what happens to them. Uh, army Doctrine 17 is going to be showing uh, where the army is going in the future. The Navy's got a, certainly one of its aircraft carriers, etc., etc. Um, so what they will be doing is the same as they would have been doing without Brexit. Secondly, put it into the NATO context. The United Kingdom's general says not leaving NATO uh, and has probably got uh, as much to uh, contribute as ever before. Then look at the overseas or, or the wider picture. The threat lecture in the morning will be the same as it was without Brexit. And that is very important to remember. So it's not going to make any difference uh, uh, at all. It may make bits and pieces here and there. It might make equipment more expensive. It might make programs exactly more right. difficult yeah, to deliver. Yeah, but hang on. The price of oil makes equipment expensive. Mm. If you don't sell your equipment to the Saudis, that makes it more expensive. But in the long term, we'll be sitting here in 10 years' time if there weren't a Brexit, and we'll be getting to the, getting to the same result. But the most important thing, the threat will evolve as it will without or with Brexit. But look at the economic effects, potentially. Well, let's talk now about the biggest event of 2016, the election of President Trump. You know, when I look at these great admirals and these great generals and these great Medal of Honor recipients behind me, to think of her being their boss? I don't think so. There's about four minutes between the order being given and the people responsible for launching nuclear weapons to do so. And that's why 10 people who have had that awesome responsibility have come out and in an unprecedented way said they would not trust Donald Trump with the nuclear codes or to have his finger on the nuclear button. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. You had your Brexit in June because you voted to leave Europe? 
Yesterday we had our Brexit, except America voted to leave America. Well, joining us to talk about President-elect Trump is Malcolm Brown from Feature Story News in Washington. Good to speak to you today, Malcolm. It really stopped America in its tracks and sent a shiver throughout the world. It really did. It was an extraordinary year in which the outsider, highly improbable candidate won the most important job in the world. Let's just remember the arc of events. It was uh, back in June 2015 that he announced his candidacy. Uh, To many, it seemed laughable at the time. He was one of 17 candidates in what turned out to be a very bruising and divisive Republican primary process. By May 2016, he was the presumptive nominee. Uh, And all along the way, he confounded the pollsters and conventions wisdom. He shredded the political playbook and the way a campaign was meant to be run. Uh, And the result of his victory is that Democrats have crashed from the party poised to hold the White House and uh, take back the Senate to a position of holding none of the levers of power. Uh, Among the other consequences, it ended at least for now the Clinton and Bush political dynasties here in the United States. As for the rest of the world, you've got foreign capitals, corporations left to wonder what the extraordinary ascent of a brash businessman and a TV celebrity means for them. Uh, On the foreign landscape, we've already seen some poking of China over Taiwan based on uh, Trump's campaign rhetoric. Better relations with Russia, certainly different relations with Russia, could be a priority. And a shake-up in the way America trades with the world looked to be on the card. So uh, a lot of change has happened, uh, extraordinary events and uh, more change in the pipeline. Lord Dunnett, what does this mean for transatlantic alliances? Well, I think um, we've just heard some very interesting, some very, very wise comments. Um, I think the thing that um, is perhaps most worrying from the UK's point of view, we have always uh, had a very good relationship, so-called special relationship. I think in many ways it is very special with the United States. Uh, Since the Second World War, most of the major operations that we've been involved in have been led by the United States, either in alliance or, or in coalition. And therefore, it is very worrying that the American political process can apparently produce two candidates that no one really wanted to see to win at all. Uh, and therefore, I think one would rather hope that the United States population... We're back to leadership again, aren't well, we? It is, it is back to leadership. That actually, but they've got to produce leaders, that, that leaders that can lead and that people want to be led by and people will want to trust. And I'm afraid both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump the majority of people did not want to trust. And that's really worrying for America. It's worrying for our relationship with uh, the United States. And it's, and it's worrying for the West. Uh, Malcolm Brown, uh, the appointment or the announcement of his choice of Rex Tillerson as the top diplomat, Secretary of State, how's that gone down in the US? Well, of course, uh, Trump supporters say it's an inspired decision. They've bought into his uh, view of the world that uh, the application of better business principles and uh, sharp, people from the private sector will make uh, America great again. Critics, though, are concerned about a couple of things. Uh, Firstly, his um, closeness with his necessary closeness with Russia, given uh, his company's uh, extensive business dealings in the country. Also, the likely implications for climate change of having yet another oil industry or energy sector insider um, within government. Already uh, critics of uh, President-elect Trump points to his pick for the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, uh, Scott Pruitt is someone who uh, is regarded as a climate change sceptic. He has questioned uh, the degree and the connection of man's role to global warming. And so they see uh, a fox in the hen house there. And uh, critics say Rex Tillerson uh, smacks of that, too. That said, there are others who say he's a smart guy uh, and some of the principles uh, that he has applied to the running of his successful 
digital business uh, would be useful uh, at the US State Department. And throwing to the mix, uh, three ex-military people, uh, Lord Dunnett, what, what can they offer politics? Well, um, I think military people inevitably are very involved in politics, whether it's politics with a capital P or, or whether it's with a small p. That said, I think history shows that generally... Admirals, generals and air marshals don't translate very well into being political leaders. Um, the Duke of Wellington um, was a tremendous commander of the army, <laughs> Battle of Waterloo, the high point of the British Army's history. But actually, he was a pretty rotten prime minister. And we've seen it, I think Eisenhower is the exception, mm-hmm. um, but we've seen it with politicians, with, with, with military people on this side of the Atlantic and the other side of the Atlantic. You know, we think we want to get involved because we get frustrated. But actually, if you've been great, if you've grown up as a politician, it's best that you do politics. If you've grown up as a soldier, it's best that you do soldiering. Professor Eric Gray. I think I agree with that. I agree about Eisenhower. I mean, I think the problem really is that if the new Secretary of State is as close to Putin as people say, and if Putin begins to think that, oh, well, I can get away with something, and if, say... Doesn't, doesn't he already think that? I think he... Well, I think he... Yeah, but, but even more so. Um, mm. I mean, and also, for example, if because of Trump, policies vis-a-vis Taiwan and the economy, etc. We get an, an increased confrontation, perhaps a very dangerous confrontation between China and the United States. Putin might think, oh, America's attention is elsewhere. Now's the chance to, to reverse things in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. Then we really are in trouble because America will then find it has an important defense, a defense commitment it has to keep. And we get a crisis slide which could well get out of control. I do worry about this. And Christopher Lee, as uh, Barack Obama's presidency draws to a close, how do you think he will be remembered? Um, he'll be remembered from one very, very simple thing. He was the first black president who has a legacy which is very difficult to define, but that's his legacy. I wonder if I may just quote a general whose birthday it is today. He's 90 today, General Kitson. Mm. I was a great, great, great fan of that, uh, Kitson. He said leadership is so important that the nation has to not think about it. It is partly comes through, he said, through a passage in the Church of England, Book of Common Prayer. We pray to be quietly governed. And he said, if you can't do that, you're in trouble. I'll take it one stage further that has happened in this year, and perhaps it'll become worse next year. We have lost the trust, or we have no longer trust our elite. And that's wherever it is, whether mm. it be academics, whether it be journalists, whether it be politicians or whatever, we no longer trust our elite. And once we're deserted by our elite, so, uh, then we have no faith in, in, our own, in our own state. A sobering thought. Um, and as the year comes to an end, do the people feel abandoned by their leaders? A lack of Western leadership on Syria's led to the crisis in Aleppo. We had a brief power vacuum in the immediate aftermath of the EU referendum. And what about President Trump? What will that actually be like? Eric Grove, um, looking ahead, um, more of the same? What well, I think France? we could. I think we could be in for a very dangerous year indeed. I mean, I am genuinely worried about this. I mean, there are potentials for crises because things are changing so fast. Experience, as we've heard, for a more general reason too, because of lack of trust in the experts. Uh, this is going to, I think, to lead to two tremendous dangers. And if we are talking again this time next year, in a similar kind of context, I shall be very happy. But I might be a little bit surprised. Lord Dunnett. Well, we've talked on, we've touched on NATO once or twice in this conversation over the last half an hour. I think there's a really major issue here. Donald Trump is saying, not unreasonably, and he's not the first US leader to say this, that it's perhaps not reasonable for the United States to pay 70% of the cost of NATO, and therefore the US are looking to rebalance their relationship for the security of Europe. 
I think there's an opportunity here for the British government. We are, the British are, the leading military nation within Europe. As we exit from the European Union, I think there's an opportunity for the British government to show some leadership itself within the framework of NATO. We're committed to 2% of GDP being spent on defence. If we were to raise that just to 25 or 2.5%, another 3 to £5 billion... Pounds you think spent, that's likely it, to happen? I don't think it's likely to happen, <laughs> but it may happen if we can build a strong enough case for it to happen. I think the UK would get great esteem within Europe to show it was playing a leading role in the security of Europe. It would also trump Trump, if you like, because actually it would defuse him saying that the Europeans are not doing enough for their own defence, and it would lock the United States into, into, into NATO. And that's really, really important that we keep the US locked into NATO for the benefit of European collective security. What have we got to, to be positive about in 2017? Because it does seem quite a gloomy look ahead, doesn't it? What we've got to be most positive about is that we have fantastic people in our Army, Navy, Air Force and their families. And I think the leadership at low level in particular is tremendous. I think our soldiers, sailors, airmen and marines really respond to that. And I think well-led, well-resourced, well-trained individuals will see this nation right. And I think everybody in uniform today or has been in uniform in the past should be proud of who we are and what we are and be grateful to our families who support us so much. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Lord Dannett, to Malcolm Brown, Professor Eric Grove and Christopher Lee, of course. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. So from me, Kate Jabot, and the rest of the SITREP team, may we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.